Hi everyone, I'm Gary Lewis and welcome to the GEO Podcast. Has the earth ever moved for you? Have you ever felt an earthquake? Well, today's session is going to be all about earthquakes. What causes them, exactly what they are, how we measure them, and most importantly, what to do if you find yourself in a quake. Almost all the rocks on our planet are under some form of stress. They're either being pushed together, pulled apart, or being forced to move past each other. And that's all caused by plate tectonics. In most cases, the rocks can take up quite a lot of this stress, but sometimes it gets to the breaking point and the rocks literally break and they break along what we call faults. Now those faults can be found all through the earth, but the vast majority of them are not active. So you can see faults in road cuttings that haven't been active for thousands or possibly even millions of years. And these faults, they're really just breaks in the rock where the stress has been built up and the rock has broken and moved to relieve the stress. And it's really that breaking of the rock and the release of the energy in a form of vibrations that we call waves, that really is what an earthquake is. So jumping back to the plate tectonics side, it is obvious that the boundaries of plates where two huge lithospheric plates are grinding past each other, sliding under each other or moving apart from each other, that is the place where the most stress and tension is built up in rocks. That's where there is so many active faults and that's where most of the earthquakes on Earth occur. But that said, there are places on our planet that are nowhere near plate boundaries that tension is being built up because the plate is moving and that tension is released in earthquakes. And we call those intraplate earthquakes. But maybe I'm getting a little technical. So let's go back to the concept of the waves that come when rocks break. So the energy released when rocks break form waves. And they come in three major types. They are called P waves, S waves, and surface waves. I'm not going to go into the physics of each of these waves. The important thing to know is that they are different and they travel at different speeds and can travel for different distances. P and S waves are the two waves that travel all the way around the Earth when there is a big earthquake. P waves travel faster than S waves. So if you are distant from an earthquake, the first vibrations you will feel or if it's a small earthquake and we're using a device to record it, the first wave that we record will be the P wave. Following that will come the S wave. Now why this is important is because if we can measure the amount of time that it takes from the first P wave hitting us to the first S wave hitting us, we can actually use a fairly simple relationship to work out how far away from us that earthquake was. A little like when you see the flash of lightning and you count till you hear the thunder gives you an indication of how far that lightning strike was away from you. The third kind of wave, surface waves, don't travel very far away 
from the location of the earthquake. But they are probably the most damaging and certainly the things that rock buildings and bring them to the ground in very large earthquakes. So to sum that all up, we have three types of earthquake waves, P and S waves that can travel great distances, P wave being the fastest, S wave being slightly slower, and then surface waves that propagate out but don't travel very far away from where the earthquake took place. Now, as most earthquakes take place when rocks break deep in our crust, there's a couple of terms that we use to explain the difference between the place that the earthquake took place on the fault, and we call that the earthquake focus, and the point directly above that on the surface of the land, and we call that the earthquake epicenter. Now, some earthquakes can be very deep, let's say 100 kilometers deep. So the focus is at 100 kilometers below the surface of the earth. The epicenter is that point of land directly above the focus. Then when we measure distances to earthquakes, we're really measuring the distance to the focus, not to the epicenter. Yet when we go and look for damage from an earthquake, we will try to find the epicenter directly above the focus because that is where the damage to human properties, farms, equipment, infrastructure like rails, telephone wires, electric cables, etc. will have taken place. So when we're measuring earthquakes, we measure the arrival of the P wave and then time it till the arrival of the S wave. And that gives us the distance away from us the earthquake took place. But what it doesn't do is tell us the direction that the earthquake was in. So if we measure an earthquake as being 100 kilometers away from us, it could be 100 kilometers in any direction. So with one piece of measuring equipment, we can work out how far away it was from that point, but we don't know where it was. So we require at least two more, so three in total places to measure the earthquake so we can work out where the earthquake took place. And we do that by plotting the distances on a map using circles from the point 100 kilometers away from us, for example, we draw a circle on the map and then it may be 80 kilometers from the second place and maybe 120 kilometers from the third. And if we draw those circles on the map where the circles all intersect, shows us the epicenter of the earthquake. Of course, nowadays, all those measurements are being done by computer-aided equipment. No one's actually plotting things on graphs. The computer algorithm does the calculations within seconds to tell us where the earthquake was located and even the amount of energy that the earthquake released. So let's talk about that, the amount of energy. We normally don't hear people talking about the amount of energy. That gets converted into something that we call magnitude. I'm sure you're all familiar with something that's called the Richter scale, because that's what the media always tells us, the strength of an earthquake using the Richter scale. And the Richter scale was developed for earthquakes in California and named after the person that developed it, Dr. Richter. A slightly more sophisticated scale is now used for all around the world, and it's just referred to as magnitude. The important thing to know here is that one level of magnitude is the release of 30 times more energy than the magnitude below. So an earthquake of magnitude two is not double the amount of energy released of magnitude one, but it is 30 times stronger than a magnitude one. 
So when you get up to magnitudes 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, each time the magnitude strength is so, so dramatically stronger. As a rough guide, most people will not feel a magnitude 1 or a magnitude 2 earthquake. Maybe a very light sleeper lying down on a bed may feel a magnitude 2, but most people probably wouldn't recognize a magnitude 2. Once we get above magnitude 2, then people recognize that they've been in an earthquake. And certainly by the time we get to a magnitude 4 and a magnitude 5, they can become very scary. Above magnitude 5, in most places of the earth, there will be considerable damage. And once you get to a magnitude 7 or a magnitude 8, there will be catastrophic damage. But fortunately for the majority of people, they don't live in areas that are going to see that type of magnitude earthquake in their lifetime. However, there are some very large urban areas that are built right on plate boundaries, and they have in the past and will in the future suffer earthquakes that will be catastrophic. I'm not saying this to frighten people, but people should realise that while we can't predict when earthquakes are going to take place, we have a pretty good idea of the regions that are at a greater risk of earthquake hazard. So let me say that again. We can't predict earthquakes. We can measure earthquakes and we can provide the information almost immediately of the direction, the depth, the size, but we still have no way of predicting when an earthquake is gonna take place. What you do hear a lot is how much time has passed since the last large earthquake in areas that are at a higher risk of earthquakes. And some people equate that time between earthquakes as being part of the risk factors. And I think there is no doubt that if you are in an area that has potential for large earthquakes and you haven't had a large earthquake for a long time, then the risk factor is increasing every year as the stress builds up in the Earth's rocks. But that said, we cannot predict where or when an earthquake will take place. But what we can do is prepare people for an earthquake so they know what they need to do if they're ever in one. And I think this is really important for everybody to know, not just people that live in high earthquake risk, because you could be traveling to say San Francisco or Disneyland in Los Angeles or to Japan or to Indonesia or many of the other places that are a high earthquake hazard area. And while you're there on holiday, you could experience an earthquake knowing what to do could save your life. There are many agencies around the world that provide excellent advice about what to do in an earthquake. And all I'm going to do is provide you a quick summary and I would encourage you to do more research so you know exactly what the local authorities are telling you to do for the places that you visit. But for me, my process is fairly simple. Once I recognize I'm in an earthquake, I move away from windows and external walls, get under something as solid as I can find, like a table, and hold on until the shaking stops. Being away from the windows and external walls will protect you from things falling in on you, in particular broken glass. Being under a table or a bed, or maybe in a door frame, if that's the only thing you can get into, will protect you from things falling from above. And holding on is important because the shaking could be so strong that you would lose your feet 
or more importantly, the table or bed that you're under could move away from you. So hold on to it and keep under that protection. Once the shaking is stopped, move out of the building as quickly as you can and be prepared for aftershocks. An aftershock is just another earthquake because the stress that's been released from the break of the rocks in one place is now being transferred to another part of the system where rocks might break again, releasing another earthquake. And typically, an aftershock could be up to one magnitude lower than the earthquake that originally took place, but they could even be larger. So moving to a safer place becomes a priority. If you happen to be outside when an earthquake takes place, sit down on the ground. It's probably the safest thing you can do. If you're driving, try to avoid things like overpasses and bridges. Pull over the car as quickly as you can or just stop in the road would probably even work. Once the quake is finished, the best thing you can do is listen to what authorities are telling you and follow their advice. Having a battery-operated radio would be a really cool thing to have at this stage. And if you don't have one in the house, go out and get into your car and turn it on so you can hear what's happening. Knowing, understanding and having a plan of what to do if you're in an earthquake could save your life one day. And I didn't want this session to be doom and gloom, but I hope these snippets of information might help you one day. But as always, if you're looking for earth science information, whether you're a teacher, a rockhound, a homeschooler, or just a person who's enthusiastic about all things about geoscience, you can find more information on our website. That's geoetc.com. And as always, folks, keep on rocking. <music>